this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. this first episode under the new name, this new refocusing of everything into one place. I've been really anxious to do it, but now that I have the microphone on, I'm a, a little bit terrified. A little bit terrified because one of the one of the really difficult things for me to do in everything that I've ever done in the audio field in podcasting is it becomes really difficult for me to go into an episode by myself with no other person to talk to without a ton of notes. If you've listened to enough of my episodes, regardless of which podcast you're coming from, you know I don't just sit and read notes. That I have a more conversational aspect. But I always have like a, at least an arc of where I want to go. You know, this is the this is the story of this case, if it's further questions, or this is what I thought about this book, if it was something for semi-literate. This is the idea that I'm struggling with, the challenge that I'm facing, if it was brainstorms. Even the stuff that like uh, Lamb and I would do, and I was all I would always come in with things prepped. Although, of course, when Lamb is on the podcast. I don't have to worry as much because I have someone else there. And just the chemistry of talking to someone, especially someone that I enjoy talking to, I don't worry about it. The momentum moves and it flows. I've got to take off this. I've got this bracelet on that's making a ton of noise. Sorry about that. Okay. So I'm sitting down to get ready to do this podcast. And I've been, like I said, so psyched to do this, to get into this more conversational and more overlapping way of doing things where the ideas of one show mix with the others because it's really 
my brain really functions more like that, right? We're not all compartmentalized. You know, I don't, when I think of true crime, all I think of is true crime. Nobody does that. Everything else in your life bleeds in. That's what makes humans kind of incredible machines, isn't it? That we have all of these things mixing together. It's this, uh, there's a book called uh, Imagine. And it's by, oh my God, what's the guy's name? Jonah, Jonah Lehrer. I'm never, I'm never sure how to pronounce it. It's L-E-H-R-E-R. And it's this book about creativity. I think it came out in like uh, 2015, something like that. Actually, maybe even earlier than that, maybe a few years earlier than that. But there was a big scandal about this book because Lehrer got caught um, plagiarizing. Actually, I, I don't even know if the term plagiarize applies correctly to what he did. And my understanding of plagiarism is when you, you steal something from someone. But what he did apparently was make things up. <laughs> he had some quotes, if I remember correctly, there were some quotes from Bob Dylan that Bob Dylan didn't necessarily ever say, or he took two things and squished them together to make them say what he wanted it to say. It was something he had been accused of in the past in his writing for uh, newspapers or magazines, whatever he did before. I'm honestly, over time, I, I honestly, I feel really bad for the guy. He got publicly shamed for this and he really hasn't had a career since. Like, no one has forgiven him. He tried to do something a couple years ago and people just savaged him. I don't like that kind of cruelty. I just think that's, I mean, it's not like, yeah, sure, you um, made some stuff up in your book. It's not like the dude murdered somebody. But we're far more forgiving of people who do stuff like that. Very strange. But I bring the book up because even though it was discredited, when I read it, I didn't know that because it hadn't happened yet. It was a great book. It was a really good book. And even if he made some of the stuff up, the overall arc of how creativity works in the book, the way he explains it, it's really well done. It's kind of like a, almost like a Malcolm Gladwell deconstruction of the idea. And it's, it's just, I don't think you can find a copy of it anymore. But one of the things that he mentions in there that I had never heard of is the way that the company 3M functions. 3M as in the people who make post-it notes. They also make a whole bunch of other things, like light bulbs and flat screen televisions, sandpaper, all tape. They have, they actually have, 3M has no one core product. You know, like Coca-Cola, what's Coca-Cola make? They make Coke. McDonald's, what do they make? Hamburgers. They make other stuff, but hamburgers is their main thing, right? 3M doesn't have one of those. And it's purposeful. It's a purposeful choice because of the way that they see that the human mind works. That putting somebody in this department and this department together to work together on something or to have them, they have like these fairs. If I remember, I might be confusing some of this with Google because Google stole or not stole, but Google took a lot of the ideas of the way that 3M functioned and instituted into the way that Google functions. 
So they will, both of these companies will take people and move them from department to department so that they're never just stuck on one thing, so that they're always moving on to new things because what they bring might create an innovation and has. Like for 3M to discover how to do flat screen panels, flat screen television panels, was because the electronics department was talking to the tape department. And they said, well, what if we took essentially a piece of tape and put all the electronics on the back of that? What would that be? And so I'm talking about all this stuff because this is the way that I, I'm looking at the way that this whole new show or new direction, new name, is the way I see it going. To be able to let those things mix together, I feel like I'm, I'm going to get somewhere that I've been trying to get for a very long time, but I've been compartmentalized and it hasn't happened. But because of that, I sat down and I said, okay, I need to, you know, I got to feed that need to have notes that need to be prepped, that need to be, that need to have an arc, that need to just not be hanging out there loose with no other person to save me. And I started, I said, you know, like I'll go through the notes that I've been taking for the past couple of weeks and just see if there's anything interesting that I want to touch on. I started moving a couple of things over and then I just started going out and stop myself. I stopped myself because that tendency can go overboard. It's good to come in, you know, I don't want to just come in and turn on this and just let's see what happens because that philosophy can end up with a, nothing happening or something really boring happening, something that I would end up deleting and not releasing. But I have this tendency to go overboard with that to start filling notes on top of notes, on top of notes, on top of notes. And then I've got this page and pages and pages of stuff. And then it's like, when you have that much stuff, oh, you're going to read all of that? Well, I don't like to read it all. You know, like, well, I just want prompts. Like, oh, remember that thing? In case, you know, if, in case you get to a point where the train of thought has stopped, here is a, here's a reminder of what the tracks look like, how to get back on the road. Just those little prompts. So that's a little bit why I feel a little nervous because uh, I'm breaking a new ground here. Now, I don't think I said this in the last episode, kind of explaining what this was going to be, but this is in the new description of the show. I look at this show as a mixture of one of my favorite things, which is a notebook. You know, this is a notebook in the sense that it's disparate pieces. You know, it's in that arc that I was talking about, I'm not going for that arc. I'm going for this is interesting, this is interesting, this is interesting. Let me see what happens. You know, maybe I end up talking about this the whole time, or maybe I have to go to five different things because then there's not that much there. You know, like I know when I when I do the next, I think it's gonna be the next episode, which will be on the Death in Oslo episode of the new Unsolved Mysteries, that's going to be the whole episode. I don't imagine talking about that and then jumping to another topic. <laughs> so I have a feeling when I do true crime stuff that they'll probably be fairly self-contained. Unless I have, you know, like some small note about something true crime. But for the most part, I can see certain things being just one episode and having that arc. But not because I forced it, but because it just makes sense for it to be done that way. 
The other thing that I look at when I look at this show is there's the notebook, this mingling of ideas, and then this, what we're doing right now, me just talking it out, me just turning on the microphone and moving forward. Because to me, it reminds me of something that the more I think about it, I'm not positive (laughs) actually existed the way that I think it did. I'll get back to that in a second. But let me ask you this first. Do you ever have the experience of looking back on something from when you were younger and you have this concept of what it was, but then when you go look at it, it was different. It was very different. I think almost everybody can say yes to that, but let me add something onto that. Have you ever built something in your life based on the concept of that thing that maybe didn't exist the way that you think it existed. Because to me, I remember, I seem to remember, especially like in the 80s, there being this phenomena of the late night radio. And yes, there's late night radio. There's still late night radio to this day. You have Coast to Coast AM, which is probably one of the most famous all night radio programs where they get on and they talk about the paranormal for like four or five hours every night. But when I go and I listen to that show, I was kind of expecting it to be, you know, like I wasn't, I wasn't one of the people that knew about Coast to Coast. It just never, it never made its way into my realm. I'd never heard of it until a couple of years ago. But when I heard it, I was like, oh, that that's the thing that I've been remembering, right? That's late night radio. What I was thinking it was going to be is this. Someone, except not in their room, not in front of a computer, but someone in a booth at a radio station late at night talking to maybe nobody, talking to maybe empty air every once in a while, getting a phone call, talking to the caller. But when I listened to Coast to Coast and I listened to come of the, a couple of the other well-known radio late-night shows. It was a lot, a lot of Collins and a lot of guests and a lot of commercials and a lot of bing, boom, bam, boom, boom, noises and sound effects and uh, all this rigmarole. And that's not what I remember it being. I remember being this, like just this microphone and this voice, and this person talking. And every once in a while, they would break for a commercial. Maybe they'd break for a song. And maybe maybe this only existed in movies. Maybe it never existed in real life. I don't know. But it was always something that I latched onto. It's not like I even listened to these things. But the idea of it, for some reason, it, maybe I didn't latch onto it. Maybe it latched onto me. Because it's been with me all these years. And when I started doing podcasting, it started surfacing. And it didn't start to surface in a visible way, in a way that I recognized. It was just like this longing for something. That when I started, when I put on these headphones, and after doing it long enough, when I started doing, actually, it was when I started doing solo stuff. I didn't think about it when I was doing stuff with Lamb because that was just a conversation. So for the first three or four, three years, two years, whatever it was, I didn't think about it. But then when he wasn't here anymore, 
and I was doing it by myself. And there's nothing but the, the light buzz of the room that you guys will never hear because when I go into edit, I have a nice little plug-in that creates a little noise gate and cuts that off so you can't hear it. But for me, it's just that light buzz in the room and the sound of my voice. And something about the mood of that, it just took me to what maybe was an imaginary memory of late night radio. And I've been thinking about that a lot this week. You know, like I said, I've been really excited to do this, to jump in, to do it, to create this thing that's been in my head. But what I've also been facing is like the fact that maybe what I'm remembering is not real. And what struck me five minutes before I, before I turned this on, five minutes that I was waiting for the heater to go off so that it wouldn't be in the background, it struck me the, you know, there's the, the, the Gandhi quote, be the change you wish to see in the world. There's also many, many artists who have said the thing that you want, whether it's a book or the album or the movie, that you want to see that nobody's made, that's your job to make it. So maybe this late night radio format of just the voice and the silence and whatever this is, this kind of talking, or just off the top of my head, if it didn't exist, then it's my job to create it. And if if I'm doing something that's been done before, then it makes me no different than any other human either. We're continually doing things that somebody else has already done. I just haven't done it. And that's one of the reasons that filling up this page with notes was something I didn't want to do because it loses this. You know, everything I'm talking about here, I don't have notes for this. You know what I have written for the part that we talked about? Notebook, late night radio. Those are my prompts. This is all stuff that I'm feeling, the stuff that I'm thinking, stuff that's on my mind. Not just now, but obviously for a very long time. Another reason that I was really nervous to do this is because this election, which we're not going to talk about, this election, it's been difficult for everybody. And it's been really hard to, I don't have a problem with talking about stuff that doesn't have to do with that. You know, because we all need distractions. I hate when something happens in the news and I turn on a podcast that will say that never has to do with politics and it's about politics. And I turn on the next one and it's about politics. And then it's like, you can't escape this thing that maybe you just want to escape for an hour or two. I hate that. So I understand. I don't feel guilt about talking about something that's less important than what's going on in the world because I know that has a place. But it's so, this whole thing is taking over such a huge part of, not even my active memory, like my passive memory. It's like, you know that hum I mentioned in the room? This whole thing is like that hum. You know, like if I just, if I stop and I'm quiet and listen for it, I can hear it and I can focus on it and I can go there. 
But if I'm doing other things, I can forget it's there a little bit. But there's still part of my brain, even when I forget, that's processing that it's there. And so even though technically in some way we are talking about it, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it because I feel like it's like, it's like politics is that one topic that like, if you go there, you never come back. You know, you don't just talk about it once and never bring it up again, because once you've opened that door, you know, you can open that door again. Actually, maybe it's not the only topic. Now that I, I remember, there's a quote from Kurt Vonnegut about sex and why he never put sex in his books. And I'm not going to remember it exactly the way he said it, because I don't have that machine-like memory. But essentially what he said is he didn't put sex in his books because he feels like once you introduce that into the book, nobody wants to hear about uh, the mining process in a town or what it's like to scuba dive. You know, once you introduce that tension of sexuality into a book, that's what people want to hear about. So the rest of the book is, you know, it's out the window. So much, so many of these, these thoughts and these things that we hear, you know, these, this concept of late night radio, this idea from Kurt Vonnegut. So I just didn't, I didn't, and I don't want to go there. I think the, the amount that I've touched on it right now is enough. I acknowledge the fact that it exists. And I'll tell you a funny story wanting this escape that I was talking about, wanting to not think about that. And I said, you know, I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to read a book. And I have this tendency to jump from book to book. I don't read just one book. And I've got a ton on the coffee table over there. Anybody that listens to semi-literate or listen to the semi-literate feed before I brought everything here, has heard me mention this. I looked at the books on my shelf. I looked at the books on my coffee table. What do I want to read? What's a distraction? And there's this book, and I actually hesitate to call it a book because I think tome is a better word. It's a big book. It's like 1,200 pages. It's a big book. It's called Cultural Amnesia by Clive James. And essentially, it's an anthology. Uh, it's not an anthology. I mean, it's an, an anthology of essays. The whole premise of the book is essentially that there are things, there are people that Clive James believes that we have, we've forgotten about or we don't think about enough. That we're, our culture is, you know, getting amnesia. We're losing them. You know, whether it's an an old vaudevillian comedian or a, a politician. So he, he has these essays about them, short little essays. I mean, there must be in this big book, probably close to maybe, I'd say, 100 people. And they're not all good people. This isn't like some nostalgic, like, this person was really cool when they did this. The essays sometimes use these people as a starting place, and then he kind of goes somewhere else with it and then brings it back around. It's more about the significance of the person almost as a symbol. And it's, I mean, it's a fantastic book. I love it. I've owned it for 
probably five years. Still haven't even got halfway through it because it's not like one of those books that you power through. And like I said, I don't tend to power through books anyways, but this book in particular, it's like one that you want to, you just want to move with when you're in the, when you're in the place for it. Read about a couple people and let that just kind of like stick with you for a while. Don't read the next one and just forget the one from before. We have a tendency to do that sometimes. We have a tendency to just keep putting input in and just keep putting input and adding more input. And what happens is we don't spend enough time with each of the inputs that we are putting in. And they, you know, like the the VCR tapes that they used to have that would record this uh, surveillance footage in convenience stores. What happens in every cop show from like the 80s and the 90s? They go to get the tape. It's been written over. It's on a cycle. Every 24 hours, it writes over the video from the day before. Our brains are kind of like that. You put stuff in too fast, and it just kind of writes over the other stuff. I've learned this the hard way twice. When, uh, God, if I can remember what it's called, when Netflix first started. When they first started... Some of you might not remember this. The, pro, the the business model was that they mail you, in the physical mail, a DVD of a movie. So you go onto their website and you say, I want to see Charlie Chaplin's The Dictator. Or I want to see When Harry Met Sally. Or I want to see Die Hard. And they mail it to you. Comes in, they came in, they used to come in this little envelope. No case either. Just literally the disc. I don't know how these things survived, but it was literally just the disc inside a paper envelope. You take it out and you watch the damn movie and then you return it. And then you pick it, you know, you had this cue. That's where the idea of the cue originally came from. I mean, aside from the physical cue of people waiting in line, which is a British terminology for waiting in line, they're waiting in the queue. But the queue, the list, the thing that are in all these streaming apps, it came from Netflix. You go in, you say, I want to see this movie, I want to see this movie, I want to see this movie, I want to see this movie. And the reason you had the queue was because they're physical discs. So like library books, sometimes they're checked out. So just because, you know, you want to see Ghostbusters again, doesn't mean that somebody else isn't already... You know, it doesn't already have it at their house. You know, they buy, obviously, many, many versions of the DVDs, but it, it would happen, especially if it was a new movie. Good luck. It was like six months. So it would go down to the next thing in your queue. So you just create this queue, like, I want to see all these movies. You can get them to me whenever you can. Then they had this crazy thing, a thing that I can't remember the name of. <laughs> but it was this crazy idea of watching videos online. And you might not believe this, considering that it's like the the main, well, one of the two main modes that people watch entertainment now. Either they have still have cable television or on-the-air television, or they stream. But when, it, when this first came out, it might have been called Netflix Stream. I don't remember. But when it first came out, 
Nobody thought it was anything of it. Like, man, whatever. But I saw something there. I didn't see, maybe, I definitely didn't see it becoming what it is now. But what I saw was, hmm, I can I can watch a movie that comes to me in the mail. But, you know, like, you have to mail it. And even though I live in San Jose, California, which is about 12 minutes from Netflix headquarters, where the DVDs are coming from, it would still take a day or two. You know, actually, it would take about, I think it was like a, it's either a two or three day process because, you know, you'd have to mail the DVD and then another one would have to come to you. So it's at least two days. I think three was average. So you're not watching a movie every day because you don't have a movie every day. So I saw this streaming thing and I was like, oh, that's cool. It can fill the gaps, you know, like I can watch the DVD, send it back and then stream a movie, stream a movie, stream a movie new DVD comes. So continual stream. And the thing about it too, maybe I didn't mention this, but the streaming, it didn't have everything. I mean, even today, nothing has everything. But you can generally find almost anything. They only had license to stream a very small percentage of the DVDs. So if the DVDs, because there was no... God, I hope I hope I'm not just reiterating all this for people who already know it or remember it. But let's go down memory lane here. Pretty sure they had almost everything on DVD. The licensing was different because it was like being blockbuster, you know, like being a movie rental place. But they had like maybe, maybe, maybe 10% that was available for streaming. I got into this all of a sudden. I went from realizing like, oh, I can fill the days that the DVDs are coming with these streaming movies. I got to realize like, I can watch more than one movie. I can watch like, I can watch like a shitload of these movies. What if I try to watch all of them? Because believe it or not, at that time it was actually possible. There was a small enough number of movies and maybe even TV shows on their streaming platform that it was feasible that you could go through all of them. So I, I set myself that goal. And I got to a point where I was watching three, sometimes four movies a day. Just devouring movies. And because the content that these the, the movies that I was getting on Netflix were a lot of, of foreign films because and I guess they didn't think anybody gave a shit about them. Whoever licensed them was like, sure, you want to do what on the internet? Oh, okay, whatever. All this, the normal, we'll use the air quotes there, normal, the popular, the average stuff the American movies, all of that stuff. That was mostly on DVD. So I was watching these foreign films, and if you've watched foreign films, at least the ones that actually make it to us, they're deep. They're artful. And it doesn't mean that they don't make poppy crap like we do. It's just we don't know. 
we got enough of our own copy crap. We don't watch theirs. But the good stuff. For decades, the good stuff. Since probably the at least the 50s, the good stuff has been coming over here. I watched, you know, Kira Kurosawa, a bunch of, actually a bunch of Asian, a bunch of Asian films. But this stuff was heavy. And I was just devouring so much of it. that I got to a point where someone had asked me like, hey, have you seen any good movies lately? I say, oh yeah, I've seen a ton. Really, which ones? Uh, um, and I'm not exaggerated. I could not take all of this data that had been pumped in my head and break it out, parse it into movies. I couldn't, I couldn't pull together one or two titles. Because in my head, it was just all mashed together because I had just been gorging myself. And I made that mistake again a couple years later when I decided I was going to read 100 books in a year. And I ended up reading way more than that. But in order to do it, I actually wrote an article about this that uh, The Observer republished. It's called uh, Read... It's called. <laughs> it's, been, it's been like five years. Uh, read less, learn more. I believe that's what it was called. I'll put a note. I mean, a note. Put a link in the description if you want to check it out. But yeah, the basic idea of it is I read a bunch of books, and in order to do it, I was doing speed reading. I was listening to audio books at three times speed, and I was just ripping through so many books that I wasn't. I wasn't learning anything. I wasn't retaining it, and I wasn't pulling any of it into my actual long-term memory. And to this day, there are things, there, there are books that I read that year that I can look at the title and remember very little, very little about it. You know, it's kind of like uh, if you were in a car and you got to a town, this beautiful village, somebody let you out and said, meet you on the other side of the village and you walk through the village you have this beautiful experience maybe you spend the day in the village you have lunch at a cafe and you walk through the rose garden you have the experience you remember this village you've absorbed it you've digested it and that'd be very different than if the person in the car just went 80 miles an hour through the village without stopping have you been there Technically, what do you remember? Mm, there were some buildings, and some of them, I think, were orange. That's what it's like. You know, just rip through that stuff. But I picked up that cultural amnesia book, and I wanted to be distracted. I didn't want to think about things, and this is the book that I hadn't picked up in, like, two years. This book that I love. I hadn't picked up in two years because it just it hadn't been the right book. I'd been on other books. I said, you know, I'm just going to read one profile, one essay, whatever. And it's just uh, this, this will be the magic that I need right now. I sat down and I had this nice little bookmark that had been in there, holding the perfect place in the book for me for years. And I plopped it open. 
And oh my God. Who is the article on? Joseph Goebbels. Yeah, the Minister of Propaganda for the Nazi Party. Now, like I said, James didn't just write these essays on people that he admired or that he liked. He wrote them about people that he felt made a significant cultural impact. And sometimes the cultural impact that we make is awful, terrible. And believe me, I part of me thought like, hey, you know, like, I guess, you know, this will teach me something about politics. And I started thinking a lot about, um, I started thinking about Hannah Arendt and the subtitle of her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem. The subtitle was A Report on the Banality of Evil. The Banality of Evil. And the whole book, the object of that book was to argue she was present for the trial of Eichmann. That's why it's Eichmann in Jerusalem. It's when he was he was found in South America and he was deported. Or not deported, but he was taken to Jerusalem and put on trial. And she sat through the trial. She was, I think, working as a reporter. And what she observed was that, at least in the case of, of Eichmann, that he wasn't this mastermind, the sinister, you know, twirling mustached villain, that he was something more banal, he was something more commonplace, that he was like a bean counter, a bean counter of of evil. You know, that evil, the one of the forms that evil could take is so banal to almost be uninteresting. And that's how almost everybody described this guy when he was on trial, that he was just Super uninteresting. He had like no personality. He was just like a machine. And I thought about that. I thought about, I thought about that when I'm looking at this Joseph Goebbels. I haven't even started to read it. I'm looking at it on the page. And it made me, made me look at everything around me, made me look at politics, this election, and all of these things. And think about how when we look back at history, when we look back at things like the Nazis, we we tend to look at them almost with this like mythical quality. I don't mean mythical. Sometimes we use mythical as a way to say that somebody is great or wonderful. I mean mythical as in like fantasy. You know, the story of myth, that there's these grand epic proportions to it, but it also doesn't feel real. And sometimes history can feel that way, right? You know, you look back at, you look back at World War II and like the lessons are so obvious because they've been hammered into us for decades. But at the time, it was messy and human and for a lot of people, normal. And I don't mean the extermination of six million people was normal. I mean, most of the world didn't know what was happening or didn't believe it. Didn't believe it was happening because it seemed crazy that something like that can happen. It's just this government and there, you know, for people outside of Germany, they're, they're crazy and they want to start war or whatever, but they're just, you know, 
it still felt normal, especially for that generation. You know, like World War I wasn't that long before. The idea of, of countries fighting in wars to take over other countries was not that strange for them. But it made me think about things that, you know, like we, we see, th- some of us see things that are wrong. Somebody said something, and it seems common sense that what they've said is bad. And other people look at it and they don't see it. They don't believe it. They've turned it off. And that, that feels normal. It's not good. It's not fun. It's not comfortable. It leads to many, many arguments between people who could normally like or love each other. But it's normal. And it made me think not about this election and about what's going on in the world right now. But what's going on in the world right now made me able to look back at Germany then and see it through the lens of living through this now. Because this is messed up. This is crazy. There are things going on that we didn't imagine could happen. But at the same time, because we're living through it, it feels, it doesn't feel mythic. You know, the way that If somebody read about this 50 years from now, maybe they could, maybe they'll see it through some like, well, that's just those, those people back then, you know, like, like we didn't, to them, we really don't exist, you know, any more than the the people of Germany exist to us. The people of Germany during World War II exist to us, their concept Praise for like, if it's just, I think the most recent Blu-ray I bought was Prisoners, just because of the quality. It's for you know, it's just you could totally stream it, but with Blu-ray, like you won't get the uh, the blocking and the uh, yeah. Okay, I'm just going down a nerd hole. Like, if it's a certain film I love, like okay, if you stream something, there will be compression, and you'll see blocks like compression blocks in the shadow. I mean, this is completely technical and not <laughs> okay. for most people. But um, so Prisoners was also directed by Denis, who did Blade Runner, and shot by Deacons, who also did Blade Runner. Um, have you seen this? It has Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman. I, I know what it is, but I haven't seen it now. Okay, so we were talking about true crime. You have to see this. It's insane. You haven't seen it. I'll let you borrow the Blu-ray. It is on. It's a true based on a true crime story. Then? It's not based on a true crime, but it, it's a. Um, really don't. I want you to go in cold. If any of the listeners know this movie, they're like shaking their head. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Plus, Hugh Jackman goes off as rocker like. After the after this film, I'm like, okay, Hugh Jackman fucking rips so hard. His acting is off the rails. It's so good. Yeah, he was like a stage guy for a long time. I know that. Like he was a yeah, musical. I mean, when I saw him as Wolvie, I'm like, yep, Wolvie, for sure. Yeah, he was such a great, perfect pick for that. Even though he's like way taller than he's supposed to be. You just, I mean, it's hard for anybody that's seen Wolverine now to imagine anybody else. Which we might have to do soon. So I'm assuming you saw Logan. Yes. Yeah. 
How could I not? It's two of my favorite things. Did you Back see in the theater? Brain. Absolutely not. <laughs> I watched it in the chair that I'm sitting in right now. <laughs> uh, that, that will never stop to bothering you, will it? <laughs> it's because I know you love movies, but it's just weird that you hate theaters. Well, you got to remember, though, for me, movies is about concept, about character, about writing, about dialogue. Yeah, it, I get like, it. You, you want to read a book. It's constant. The, what it looks like is it's important if it looks good or if it looks like shit is important. But I'm not paying attention to a lot of the visual details that you are. What happened in your childhood that made you hate theaters? <laughs> did you not see T2 or Jurassic Park in the theaters? I did not see... Well, I might have seen Terminator. There's your problem. I did not see Jurassic Park in the theater. Oh. Good. I might be wrong. I don't know. You so we're talking about ro- like childhood robbery here. I saw Oliver and Company in the movie theater. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up. I I uh, I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of. Well, it depends which parent I was with. Gotcha. My mother, I wasn't allowed to. My dad, I saw lots of movies with boobies and <laughs> violence. <laughs> Actually, Good you know, shit. it's funny. I found, uh, I've been trying to remember this movie for the longest time. Like specifically when I say I saw movies with boobies, tits, for those who think I'm talking like a child. Um, I was trying to remember this movie for years. I don't even, it was one of those, these movies where you, you were young enough that there's certain parts of it that are very memorable to you. Like for example, seeing breasts, but you don't remember a lot else about the movie. So you could never figure out what movie it was. And I've been trying to figure out for like decades what this movie was. And I finally figured it out. And it's a movie called Sisters. And I don't know if it's any good, but I found it streaming. And I'm going to probably watch it in the next week. Who's, who's in that? Uh, what's his name? The redheaded guy from Mask. Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz. Yep. The original Marty McFly. Yep. The, the too dark for... For American audiences, what was that film? Was it boxing or no? uh, Killing Zoe. Killing Zoe. Yeah, that's a great film. Ninety-three, Killing Zoe. Can you believe that? I can actually. I was a freshman in high school. Mm. Oh, sister, sister, not sisters. Nineteen eighty-seven. What's the uh, plot line? What's the? It, It is two sisters turn their family mansion in Louisiana into a guest house. One of the guests is an aide to a congressman and turns their lives inside out as a thriller. Um, Jennifer Jason Lee. Whoa. Jennifer Jason Lee, Eric Stoltz, and then Judith Ivey, who I've never heard of. It's, I don't know if it's any good. Like I saw it in 1987. It, Bill Condon's the director, though. So. But you said it came out in 93. No, no, no. 93 was um, the other movie, Killing Zoe. Oh, my bad. This is 87. But Bill Condon's a pretty good director. I mean, his Beauty and the Beast was actually a really good film. With the TV show? With Lena, with Sarah Connor? No, 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 no. Emma Watson, the newest one, 2017. Uh, Mr. Holmes was a fantastic film. That's Bill Condon. Uh, Kinsey. You remember Kinsey? Or Gods and Monsters? Brandon Fraser and Ian McKellen about... James Whale, the guy that directed the original Frankenstein. That's I remember the cover art of that. I think a VHS tape. Never saw with that the, with Ian McKellen's eye. 
right in the middle of the holes. The what? That's Gandalf, right? Yeah, Gandalf. And Mr. Holmes, for that matter, since we brought that up. Yeah, so there's a good chance the Sister Sister movie might be decent. (laughs) Holmes might be 1987 poo. They made a lot of really... 87. That's around like RoboCop and like Predator, Adventures in Babysitting. That's what I'm saying. 87, that's risk still, you know? Um, yeah, a lot of high France, concepts were being chucked. Even like the the cheesy horror films were really fucking weird. Like uh, the best horror happened way before House and House Two. House is uh, okay. House, I. If you're a Bay Area person, you remember Channel Two KTVU. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, they would they would show straight up R rated horror, th- whatever movies they would only uh cut out language mm-hmm. there was a moment of time but well and maybe titties but uh the violence was just on deck it was i would tape everything and and like like live taping put it chunk put in a tape close it down hit record but when a commercial hits you hit pause so you get that weird little vhs tape glitch in between mm-hmm. the cuts that's how I had I had uh, Terminator Two on a VHS exactly like that that somebody gave me like oh we we know you like this movie here we we taped it for you and that was like an acceptable gift back in the day now you'd be like fuck you that's so cheap I'm not trying to flex at all but we had a laserdisc player <laughs> that's a lot of storage those things were fucking it, huge. It, that. I mean, laser discs are older than you think. The first laser disc I saw was Temple of Doom. Hmm. No shit. Yeah. See, I, I go, I go to late eighties as the earliest of being aware of them. I mean, it was just so. It was like when a CD. It was just like what the f-? you know. It's just insane. It's a record, a visual record. Yeah, for people who have no idea what a laser disc is, <laughs> it's basically a DVD the size of a record. You keep saying DVD, you should be saying Blu-ray. Fuck Blu-ray. <laughs> Blu-ray's good. Blu-ray's passe. It's gone too. It's, it's the gone past. too. You're right. Do you remember House? Do you remember that? No, not the TV show, but the movie? Yes. The first thing I remember about House is... Okay, so time travel. So, oh, fuck, I guess this is 30 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, we'd go to... Uh, movie rental place this is even before blockbuster maybe a liquor store would have a movie section or there was like a video king or some just low rent uh, movie rental place maybe the logo was just this solid block of yellow with black type on it like video king or something like that house had the sick cover art it was this severed corpse hand uh I think either grabbing a doorknob or pushing a... It's ringing a doorbell. Doorbell. And the doorbell was a spike and it pierced through the finger. It was so metal and it was so sick. I will put the show art for that in the, on the Instagram for everybody so they can look at it. It's rad. Um, so we can do that. And it doesn't have to just be for these true crime episodes. All right. I hope you guys are enjoying these and I hope that the weirdness of the format that we're doing here. I hope you're appreciating it because I am. I love the fact that I can do a true crime episode 
and then the next episode talk about something completely unrelated. This Gatorade bottle is almost empty, and the notes in front of me are empty. So we'll see you when the next episode comes out. I think maybe uh, it might be a couple days. Not a whole week, just a couple days maybe. I have some things brewing on my mind. Right. Bye. The pool and his dad's not looking in the sun. He just disappears. And then slowly we unravel the hauntedness of the house. And then we get flashbacks of this dude in Vietnam. Oh my God. And then we, Richard Mull was in it from Night Court. <laughs> Forgot about that. Oh my goodness. Everyone's tapping out right now. That's okay. That's what the whole point of this show is. <laughs> How long can you last? Yeah, dude. And yeah, George Went was his neighbor. Yeah, and the house just fucking goes crazy. The practical effects are kind of cheesy when you look at it now, but they're the kind of shit that you would pull up an image and like, dude, I'm going to draw this. And it would be an amazing drawing. Like, I'm going to take a screenshot and send this to you right now. I did recently watch the sequel. House 2, Ding Dong, You're Dead, I believe was the tagline on it. Which is funny. I didn't connect it till right now when we remember that George Went is in the first one because George, or, uh, John Ratzenberger, Cliff, is in the second Cliffy one. Cliffy Clavin is in the sequel? Yeah, he's the handyman that pulls a sword out of his toolkit. I never kit. saw House 2. It's more... Funny, silly, goofy shit. Yeah. Yeah, you know like how they used to do that back in the day? Like the, the first movie would be fucking... Oh, really the example is Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 with... Um, yes. Matthew Conaghy? Or was that three? And like Renee, a young Renee Zellweger... That might have been three. Okay. But two two was a comedy too, though. Or a comedy horror. Um, let me send this image before I forget. Uh, but tell me you wouldn't buy this on a t-shirt. Yeah. So, okay. So this, what we're looking at here is a decomposed walking, a zombie basically with uh, Viet, Vietnam fatigues. Yeah. Which you can barely see because it's kind of cut off right here, but that's the helmet. But that was right? the Richard Moles character. That was, uh, what was his name? Bull in Night Court. Mm-hmm. Yep. Why is that not streaming, by the way? I don't know. Mike McGee, me and Mike McGee went down a gnarly rabbit hole about Night Court. I think he has all the Night Courts on. Oh, yeah. Mike, Mike McGee, that is his favorite TV show of all time. Yeah. Like Harry Anderson was like a hero for him. The magician. Yeah. Remember him on Cheers? Harry the Hat? Yeah. Yep. He was the he con was artist. The same character. That's three Cheers references in one episode. Give us a turkey. Okay, here's another one. My girlfriend, Laura, so when she goes to bed, she just watches shows and then passes out. She's on Frasier. Oh, yeah. That's weird. I went through, I went through and watched all of Frasier. It's, I, in, I kind of enjoyed it, but Frasier's weird. It's kind of like Wings. You kind of enjoy it, but you kind of are uncomfortable the whole time. I would rather watch Wings. <laughs> and I would rather watch Cheers over Wings. Tony Shalhoub. What I was saying, though, is what they remember they used to do. They, I think what would happen is they get a director or someone to have an idea for a horror movie. 
and they really want to make a real horror movie where they scare the shit out of people. And then it would do well. It would do, you know, like, because horror movies didn't get huge budgets. If it made money, it it was considered successful. So they go, let's do another one. But then they'd hire like a different director Mm -hmm. and they go and try to make it a little bit more um, accessible to audience. 